2009. And it is also our final Friday, so I will give you the option again tonight. Uh, we can do... Okay. All right, I've got that down. Any other questions that we can uh, tackle tonight? It might, but I just want to anticipate where we might head tonight. Any other questions that anybody's been mulling over? Barry, I'll go with you first. Is this a question that I never responded to? I apologize if I never got to it because I thought I covered all the questions. Can you formulate it again for me? Okay. Good. And Steve? Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham and he talks about him receiving the sign of circumcision as a the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. So Okay, good. I like it. That was Romans four eleven, right? Okay. Any other questions? Absolutely. I've got so much room, I can just breeze through those three. Take me about five minutes, then we'll get on to the really meaty stuff. (laughs) As you know, any one of those three could easily take an hour. But any other questions? This is the last study of 2009. If you have some unanswered questions, you're going to just have to wait until 2010. I don't know if it can last. Any other questions? Going once. Okay, yeah. You got one? Yeah, of course. You can always add on the fly on an open study. All right, well, let's tackle what we've got here. Why did, and by the way, you don't need to record these. We'll just, uh, I mean, you can record it for anybody that wants it uh, now that I'm thinking about it, but we won't, we won't upload it. We'll do it that way. All right, why did the Lord allow the patriarchs to have multiple wives? Right. Anybody want to venture a guess on this one before I tackle it? Okay, population. So, in other words, uh, in other words, you would the population answer. By the way, is a commonly uh, you know ventured answer to that question, meaning that people tend to look for a practical reason for, you know, why would this develop in this way? And practically speaking, it certainly makes sense that the, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, population would expand more quickly in that way. But number one, I don't think the Lord was in a hurry to populate the earth, so it was no rush. And number two is we still have to, even if it served a practical purpose, and it, and it certainly did, it, it would serve a practical purpose to speed up the population of the planet. The question is, is the Lord the type of person, and he is a person, of course, is the Lord the type of person that would sacrifice a principle for expediency? You know what expediency is? Expediency is like, uh, well, it'll, if it'll get the job done, it's not really the way I would prefer things, but we'll get there faster if I compromise this principle. And from what I've seen of the Lord in Scripture, 
the Lord is never, ever, ever one to sacrifice a principle for the sake of expediency. So the population answer, I think, isn't satisfying to me. I don't think the Lord allowed multiple wives for the sake of um, just getting more people onto the surface of the planet in a quicker fashion. All right, so the only passage that I know of, and I'm trying to think of where it's located, maybe one of you guys with a uh, study Bible can help me find this passage. It's in one of the Gospels. But Jesus, uh, you mentioned, Francis mentioned weakness. Uh, Jesus did tackle this question, uh, not directly, but indirectly, in that he was addressing, I think it might be in Matthew 19, but let me just double check here. I'm just going off of my top of my head memory. Let me real quickly look in Matthew 19 and see if I can find what I'm looking for here. Okay, yeah, it's, uh, it is Matthew 19. And let's just all turn there and read from verse 1. Of course, we'll eventually get to this passage in our Matthew study, but it'll be a while before we get to 19, so I don't think it'll be a problem to cover it again when we get to that point. It says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. The, the, uh, the, uh, the setup of the scene is the Pharisees are testing him, meaning they're not coming with an honest question, just uncertain and unclear about what to think in this circumstance. They're just asking him a question that they think doesn't have a satisfying answer. And whatever he answers, they think they'll be able to trap him into a a politically incorrect moment and, you know, use it to uh, undermine his reputation in the eyes of the crowds. And of course, you know, Jesus is not one to easily be trapped uh, into saying something he doesn't want to say. And so he just answers it directly and righteously. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This was a big debate at the time. There were leading, two leading rabbis around the time of Jesus that were considered to be leaders of, of early Judaism, and they both had a different view on this. One of them took a very conservative view and said divorce is not allowable for any reason. And the other um, had a very liberal perspective and said divorce is allowable for virtually any reason. You know, if the, if, you know, the classic, if the wife burns the husband's toast for breakfast, you know, he was uh, free to divorce her because he, she was no longer pleasing in his sight. And so they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Asking him, in a sense, to step in the middle of this debate. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now here is a classic mis interpretation and misapplication of the Old Testament law by the Pharisees. Moses did not require divorce in the passage that they're referring to. It was, and someone, whoever, who asked the question again at the beginning? Francis. Francis used the right word, allow. Moses allowed 
by the direction of the Lord, the inspiration of God for divorce in certain circumstances, but did not command it. So they're, they're asking him this follow-up question to further, they think, trap him in this theological trap. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, and this is the answer to our question, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, um, this, I said, this passage doesn't directly respond to our question, but the principle that's contained in the passage, I think, addresses our question as well and kind of addresses several other related questions about marriage and about, about the nature of marriage from a biblical perspective. What can we... Um, extract from this passage as a guiding principle of the true spiritual nature of marriage in the perspective of God and in the purpose of God. What is the true nature of marriage? One and one. You know, that's, that's the nature of marriage. That's how God designed it in the beginning. One man plus one woman. Okay. Of course, that original man was Adam, and the original woman was Eve. But, and we haven't gotten quite to this part, we're almost there in Ephesians chapter 5. What we're going to see is that Paul later takes this same passage from Genesis, and uh, he extrapolates a, a very, very important principle from it and applies it <coughs> into a new covenant standing uh, setting. And he um, relates Adam's role to the role of Christ and Eve's role to the role of the church. Okay, now, what that means is God's original purpose was for one man and one woman who were Adam and Eve to be married and to be married for how long? For the rest of their lives here in this world. And we don't want to say forever because Adam and Eve are not married today in heaven, okay? They were married within the context of this present world. But that's is pointing to symbolically and spiritually to a pattern of the relationship between Christ and the church. And it's critically important that we understand that it would have changed this picture, the picture of Christ and the church, if Adam had been married to Eve plus Susie, plus Mary, you know, plus, 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 plus. Because what would that have implied? As it relates to this next level. Right. It would have, it would have implied that the church needs to, in some sense, be more than one. And the unity of the church is a very important principle in God's eternal plan and purpose, as we saw at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, we spent a whole couple of weeks studying the, the principle of the, the significance of the spiritual unity of the church. So Christ is not covenantly married to the church plus some other group of people in history. He's married to the church and to the church alone. Okay, So this much we can be absolutely certain of. God never intended, never planned, never purposed for men to be married to more than one woman. And it's almost always that pattern, right? 
It's not, it, we, you rarely see it, one woman married to multiple husbands. It's usually one husband married to, to multiple women. But, but the Lord never intended it for, for it to be that way. And we see Jesus emphasizing that, and he makes his point of emphasis in answering the question they were asking, which is more directly a question not about multiple marriages, but a question about divorce. But the idea being that he made his answer strictly based upon the original creation pattern that we see in the way God set Adam and Eve in the garden when God could easily have made it Adam and Eve and Susie and Mary all to start in the garden. And it certainly would have, it certainly would have populated the earth more quickly had God given Adam multiple wives from the very beginning, but he didn't intend for it to be that way. Now, here we, let's, now that's, that's the beginning. Here's our timeline. And here's the, 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 uh, the revolving point of history in the cross and in the resurrection. And then here we are sometime later in history in the New Covenant. This line, of course, separates Old Covenant from New. Okay, so from the very beginning, we'll see... I'm going to put OP here. Original pattern at the very beginning. One man and one woman. Then Jesus comes along and he reaffirms in his teaching the original pattern principle. And he's intending that principle to, to based upon his teaching, his reaffirmation of God's original creation pattern to be the guiding principle for the behavior of his followers from that point forward in history on. And we see other other elements like, uh, for instance, in the consideration of who qualifies to be an elder in both 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, there's this simple line that Paul adds to those lists of character qualifications that the elder must be the husband of one wife, all right? And so that implies very clearly that it is a, a possibility based upon cultural surrounding an influence that an elder candidate could have more than one wife, and some did in those days. But if they, if they had more than one wife, according to Paul's guideline, what was to be the decision in regards to placing them in the position of eldership? They're not, they're not qualified. Does that mean they're not a Christian? No. Does that mean they can't be part of the church? No. It just means that they could not serve the church in a leadership role. Why? Because the leadership role even more than the average church member role, is meant to reflect the pattern of Christ in the church. And so the leader's life has to reflect that pattern in a more obvious and direct way. So we have the original pattern in place at the beginning. We have the original pattern reaffirmed and confirmed by Christ as the guiding principle for marriage on into the new covenant. And that extends up till today, and it extends all the way to whatever the unknown second coming of Christ point in time is. This will be the guiding principle. The only thing we have to answer is why, and I'm putting it in parentheses, somewhere between the original pattern in the garden and Jesus coming along and saying this was never God's pattern to begin with, why do we see exceptions and that's exactly what they are. They're exceptions. And when we have exceptions, we, we, 
in the context of what we're discussing, we refer to them as exceptions to the rule. You know, the, fa- the fact that they're exceptions also implies that there's a guiding rule behind the exceptions and that these stand out from the rule, okay? So the only question we have to answer is why, and we see this in Abraham's life. He had more than one wife. We see this in the case of, for instance, like uh, David had more than one wife. Solomon took it to the farthest possible human experience level. How many wives? Anybody remember how many wives Solomon had? 300 wives. But that wasn't sufficient. He also had 700 concubines to make a nice round total of 1,000, you know, significant others uh, using modern day terminology, you know. Uh, well, yeah, he was the wisest, but not, that doesn't mean that he was perfectly wise. <laughs> it just means wise in, wisest in comparison to the others you know, that were alive. That just shows you, all that is is a comment on how, how unwise the world's population was uh, at the time of Solomon. Because, you know, this is a pretty important area of life, right? And it's not like God's word was, you know, forgotten or non-existent during that time. Those guys had the availability to read the book of Genesis, to read the same, you know, first two chapters of Genesis that we read, and to draw the same right conclusions that we draw. Now, of course, they didn't have the benefit of Jesus coming along and clarifying it for us, and they didn't have the benefit of the Holy Spirit uh, enlightening their eyes in the same way that he does ours in the New Covenant. But they should have known. There is no excuse, is what I'm saying. All right, so there are exceptions to the rule. The rule is one man, one woman. The Old Covenant um, differences in the lives of some of our heroes of faith are exceptions to the rule, and the only thing we have to now, there, there's one last piece of the puzzle, is we have to identify what is the cause of the exception. I'm not going to guess about this one. We have, thankfully, you know, thanks to the Lord, we have a very clear and definitive answer. We just read it, but let's read it again. Hardness of heart. Chapter 19 again of Matthew. They said in verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I can rephrase that and it would fit, the answer would fit the exact same way. Why did some of the patriarchs marry more than one wife? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives or allowed you to have more than one wife. Because of the hardness of your heart. Now, this is an interesting principle. Does God ever allow you to do anything because you're hard-hearted? Yes. Doesn't make sense to us in the, in the sense that, you know, if you're doing something, like, as, let's, let's put it in the context of parent to child. You're parenting your children. You want your children to grow up and be the best possible children they can be. And you want them to be the best possible children based upon your influence in their lives and your instruction and your, your, your you know, discipleship. And you teach them, here is the pattern of what you should do and how you should live. And yet, they're demonstrating in a particular area hardness of heart toward your instruction, toward your discipleship, toward your influence. They just, for whatever reason, 
They've got it in their heart that they just want to resist that point. And they want to do not what you want them to do, and not even what's best for them to do, but what they want to do. So what do you do as a parent in that circumstance? Do you force them? It, 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 I'll just say it this way. Not just that. It depends on how old. It depends on a lot of factors. Because there are some circumstances in which a certain kind of force, and we're talking about like disciplinary force, can produce good fruit of change and repentance in the heart of a child or a young person. But there are other, there are other expressions of force based upon the one who's in authority forcing the one who's under authority that can actually lead to the breaking of the heart. And I don't mean breaking in a good repentant way. I mean breaking in the sense of breaking the relationship. Damaging, you know, severely damaging the relationship. So do you force the child when they just have it in their heart, I just can't do that. I want to do it the way I want to do it. Do you force them to do the right thing even, though, even when you know, okay, if they don't do it, they're going to pay the price. It's going to hurt them somewhere down the road. Well, you, if you force them and you see that it's going to break that relationship, is it wise to continue to force? You may choose to back off a little bit, and you may choose to allow them to go down that road a ways and to what? Taste the fruit of the consequences of their own decisions and let the, the, the result of their choices instruct them in how wise your teaching and your principle really was. So that they now come back around to see your way, but now they come with the wisdom of experience in their back pocket and a little bit more respect for what you've instructed them on. Okay, well, the Lord very clearly, <laughs> I mean, He made it blatant and obvious in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that this was the way. He wanted marriage to work. This was the pattern. This was the principle. But, of course, there was some new factor that was introduced right after this original pattern was set in motion, set in place. What was the new factor? Sin and the fall. Now, what sin tends to do is it takes every good thing that God has made and established, and it twists it so that it's no longer what it originally was. It's now something man has made of it rather than what God had originally intended it to be. So now you take that sin influence and apply that to the pattern of marriage. And what do you get? You get something that's somewhat similar but something twisted and something that's not quite the same. And so it doesn't mean that every man and every woman after the fall fell into this new pattern of of additional wives, it just means that many did. Because you know how it is, you know, sin is, you know, got a, 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 a thousand and one, a million and one faces. And, you know, we don't all fall into the same identical specific sins. But sin certainly enters into this picture. And so when sin entered, and when men, and generally speaking, as I said, it's men that, that you know, it's not like, there's lots and lots of women out there that are just demanding the right to share their husbands with other wives. It's generally speaking men that want to have the right and the access to multiple women. And, you know, I don't have to explain all the whys and the wherefores of the, the human motivation in the heart of a man to, to desire that, that lifestyle, that pattern. But the Lord says it's not wise. 
and it certainly doesn't serve the Lord's purpose of the original pattern. And it's going to create its own set of problems, just like it did for Solomon. What was the problem it created for Solomon? Right, the Lord said, don't do this. And not only was it a, a, a requirement for Solomon, the Lord also warned all of the kings of Israel, and he said, do not multiply wives. If you do, this is what's going to happen. They're going to lead you astray. You're going to fall into their influence. You're going to fall into a pattern of trying to please them, and you're not going to be able to do it. And as a result, you're going to end up making decisions. You're going to make choices that are going to lead you know, to, to really bad consequences. And that's certainly what happened with Solomon. So the answer, as far as I can see, is it's hardness of heart. But the Lord allowed it. And if we ask the question, why did he allow it? I just think it's a circumstance where you know, he's balancing instructing them about the consequences of sin and the consequences of ignoring his wise patterns with forcing them to only do the right thing to such an extent that it irreparably breaks the relationship. And so he allowed them to taste the consequences on something that was very important but not, and this is going to sound strange, very important but not essential to their covenant relationship with the Lord. So he gave them permission and worked within the boundaries of their weakness. But never compromised his original purpose and pattern and always was you know, influencing them back in, the, in that direction. And certainly when the time came for a covenant transition now, and the reason why now in the new covenant it's not even allowed anymore is what? What's the difference between old covenant and new covenant as far as our experience and, and as far as we're concerned? Why would he allow it to Abraham or to David, or to Solomon, and not allow it to me, or to you, or to you? Why would he allow it to a person in one covenant, but not in another? Because the natures of the covenant are completely different. The old covenant was, here's my standards, here's my holy law, I'm I'm requiring you to live up to it, but you're not going to be able to. Why? Because one, they weren't born again, and two, they weren't filled with the Spirit of God in the same way that we are in the new covenant. So, you know, there's, and this is going back again to our Ephesians study. You know, I don't have any excuse. I'm a new self, recreated after the image of the one who made me in holiness and righteousness. And I've been filled with the Holy Spirit himself who inspired these standards and and patterns and principles. And so I'm held to a new and greater and higher standard. I'm held to the standard that Christ says, we're returning to the original pattern now. Because now he, on the on the cross, he's dealt with this original, you know, sin influence issue. Doesn't mean that sin no longer exists, just means that we now have the capacity to resist it and and succeed and have victory over it. Yes, Tim. It, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was, a, let me say it this way, it was a sin against the original pattern. A sin against the original pattern is a sin. Absolutely. However, he didn't enact all of the full penalty of the law against that sin. You know, uh, for me today, this is what I believe. If I were to say, you know, Sandy, hold on. We're going to add another woman to the equation here and bring another woman into the house. What would, that, what would that theologically, spiritually really be for me? To me, it would be a sin of adultery because it's, you know, it's just, it's a sin against the, 
the special and unique bond between one man and one woman. So yeah, I mean, I put it in that category. But the Lord did not enact that penalty against them because of the hardness of their hearts in this category, in this area. To some degree, but it's not, we're, here, we're not given nearly the, the leeway that they were given in the Old Testament to, to uh, ignore his patterns. doesn't ma- mean that we're perfect and they weren't by any means, by any stretch. But, you know, we, we have literally no excuse. At least they had the excuse of, you know, they're not born again. They're not filled with the Spirit. They don't fully understand these patterns the way we are supposed to today. And so we're just, you know, we're just called and held to, I think, a higher standard. Yeah, at least this is how I look at it, okay? And obviously we're talking about here an issue that there's not a lot of detail given to us to answer this specific question. We're called, like the book of Proverbs does, the book of Proverbs I think is an extrapolation of the principles of the law and said, here's how you practically apply these things. This is what I believe is the right extrapolation of the principle. Yeah. What would happen in the New Testament church, and this, this was actually a fairly common occurrence at the very beginning of the church, is that you're saved and you already have multiple wives. Would it be righteous for you to divorce your, your second, third, and fourth wife and kick them out of the house because you've just become a Christian? No, it wouldn't. And so God would say, you know, be faithful to those. Don't add any more. You know, you can't be an elder, by the way. But, you know, um, carry on. Uh-huh. Did you say Muslim man or muscle man? <laughs> I could, I, I'm just joking. <laughs> sounded like you said muscle man. Muslim? Yeah. <laughs> he, needs, he needs the extra strength, you know. <laughs> I, well, yeah, it absolutely did happen, and it still happens today, not just not as, as generally speaking in our culture, because in our culture it's, it's, it's illegal by the laws of the land, but there are nations in the world today that still allow for multiple marriages, you know, multiple wives. And so if a person gets saved from that culture, I think the same principle of accommodating their prior weakness and ignorance applies, which is, you know, I, I would not recommend kicking out the second, third, and fourth wife. You know, I think, I think that, yeah. But at the same time, as soon as they're saved, they're at least, you know, no longer qualified to serve in that particular role because that particular role is meant to, again, point very directly back to the pattern of Christ in the church. No, not any longer, you know, because, you know, it's not a sin to do the best thing in a difficult circumstance and to obey God in your presence situation you know it just like same thing if a if a a unbeliever is married to another unbeliever and then one of those unbelievers is saved it is a sin for a un for a believer to intentionally marry an unbeliever but if you're married to an unbeliever and you get saved should you then leave your unbelieving spouse no you should remain in that relationship be faithful love them to death and and trust the lord in that difficult circumstance you know, and it's the same kind of principle, I think, that's applied here, which is God accommodating the fact that we were lost and now we're found. And, you know, what do we do from the point that we're found forward? 
in our uh, uh, heart's obedience in response to the Lord. Yes, Maria? Because Paul says, God says, practice those things mm-hmm. Right, it is an intention of the heart that's primarily in view. What's that? You're talking about now going back to the patriarchs again? Okay, but keep in mind, keep in mind, no, practice implies not just behavior, it implies intention of the heart. The men that did that, generally speaking, were not intentionally committing adultery. You know, most of them were raised in cultures that just recognized the importance and the, and the value of the multiplicity of wives. And so they thought they were doing the right thing. That's different than the kind of practice that John is talking about where he says, you know better, you shouldn't be doing this, and you're choosing to practice it anyway. So, Anyway, tough question. It's not, no easy answers to that, but that's my best uh, shot at answering it. Okay, you're welcome. All right, let's go on to Barry's uh, question, which, again, my apologies, Barry. I thought I had tackled that, but I, apparently I, I left that one out. His question was, what is the nature, and, and correct me, Barry, if I'm getting rewording your uh, question the wrong way, what is the nature of the image of God in man? What is that, really? Like if you had to uh, target, what about me bears the image of God? What about you bears the image of God? Is it my... Um, is it my... Uh, physical features? You better hope not because you don't look like me, you know, right? Right? It's not physical features. It's not gender because women bear the image of God and men bear the image of God. It's not physical. It's not gender. It is absolutely spiritual. Um, Let's look at a passage that we studied, but... um, let me re-emphasize uh, it. This is in um, Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to reread verse 24. And I'm going to connect that with the original passage that identifies this principle for us back in Genesis chapter 1. So let me turn there as well. I want to read both passages. In fact, let me, read, let me just read the Genesis passage first, and then I'll read the Ephesians 4 passage on top of it. All right, the Genesis passage, and this is our, this is our ruling passage in the sense because it, it, it's the first mention of the concept, and any time in Scripture you have an important theological concept, the first mention is always a very important passage. This is Genesis 1.26. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, so there's two key phrases that I want us to focus on in verse 26. And they're not saying different things. This is what's known as a Hebraism, meaning that this was a a, a common way of emphasizing something in the Hebrew language, and that's to say the same thing twice with slightly different wording. 
the second time you say it doesn't change what you just said. It just reemphasizes it with a slightly new perspective. So when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, image and likeness are not two different things. Like I have in me both the image of God and the likeness of God. It's the same thing being described from slightly different perspective. So when we read image, we can also understand likeness. And when we read likeness, we can also understand image. So with that concept, fast forward to Ephesians chapter 4. And it's in verse 24. Yes, thank you. And this is part of our old self, new self-transformation that we studied in detail. Verse 24 says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness. There's one of our two key phrases. So when we read likeness, we should also read image. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay. When we got to this passage, and I think I actually did a little bit on this concept at the same time toward the end of our Names of God study. I don't know if you remember me tackling a concept, one of those latter studies in the names of God about the attributes of God and identifying that there are two categories of the attributes of God. God is a person. Every person in, in existence has attributes that define them as a person. All right? The, the attributes that Tim has as a person are different than the attributes that I have as a per- person. There's some similarities between us, but our attributes are distinct enough that you would never, even, even if you couldn't physically see Tim and physically see me, you would be able to tell the difference between us because of the attributes that are distinct and different between the two of us, okay? So God has attributes. And what is an attribute? Okay, it's a characteristic. It's a unique quality, but it's an inner quality. It's, it's the characteristics that define you as you and make you distinct from every other person on the face of the earth. And God himself has attributes. There are two categories of God's attributes, and I didn't invent these categories. These are, these are commonly agreed upon theological categories. They are the communicable attributes... and the incommunicable attributes. And don't get lost with the big words. They just simply mean shared and unshared. Okay? The incommunicable attributes are those unique and special qualities, characteristics that God possesses as a person that he does not share with any other person in existence. None of us. Can you think, okay, what did you say? Omniscience. Omniscience is the quality of being all-knowing. Knowing everything all at once without ever not knowing anything. No human being, with of course the exception of Jesus, but even in his case, he intentionally chose during his life here in this world to not be omniscient and only was omniscient before his birth and after his resurrection. But, but no human being outside of Jesus has ever, 
is or will ever be all-knowing. There are many attributes of God that are unshared. You know, the, the three big, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, three big O's, you know, those are three that God doesn't share. The infinitude, that God is infinite, you know, that's not something that he shares. Eternal. I mean, we'll live forever by the grace of God, but we didn't live forever going backwards. We're only going to live forever going forwards. You know, we can't go back in time as God, you know, existed before the beginning of all things and always did exist without never existing. You know, those are attributes that are not shared. However, and those are, those are reserved for God alone because that, those attributes identify the line of distinction between creator and creation, God and human, that will exist for all of eternity. And if he were to share those, in essence, he would have to make us God along with him. But that's impossible because we didn't always exist and so we can't be God. However, there are communicable attributes that God intentionally does, wants to, and, and will continue to share with those that are in covenant relationship with him. Now, there are some communicable attributes that he shares with those who are unsaved and outside of covenant as well, but they're intended for, the, the benefit of the communicable attributes is intended primarily for those that are his chosen ones. What is a communicable attribute of God that we share? Okay, wisdom, excellent. God is wise. God wants us, as his people, to be marked and identified by being wise. This is not the whole definition, Barry, of what makes the image of God in man, but it is in a very important aspect of it. You will never, I don't care how smart the dog or the cat or the horse or the butterfly is, in, among all butterflies and among all dogs and among all horses and cats, you will never describe a horse or a dog as wise. They're not capable of being wise. They're not supposed to be wise. Are they therefore foolish? No, they're just in that neutral in-between ground of being neither wise nor foolish. They're, it's just outside of their capacity and outside of their creative purpose. They're not meant to walk in wisdom. Only human beings are capable of wisdom or foolishness. Animals are capable of neither. Well, I mean, we, we tend to just, you know, for, for emotional connection's sake, we tend to sometimes refer to our animals as being, you know, somewhat wise or somewhat foolish, but they're not actually really foolish. They're just untrained or trained, you know, it's a simple matter, you know. Uh, you know, they, they just act like they normally and naturally act or else we train them to act, you know, with more acceptable social behavior. But, it's, you know, their unsocial behavior is not foolish. It's just dog-like or cat-like or whatever, you know, uh, you know hamster-like or whatever you're dealing with. So wisdom is an example, a beautiful example of a communicable attribute that uniquely describes one slice of the image of God pie, so to speak. And you don't want to really slice it up like that, but just to, to, to communicate to our perspectives what God is doing is he, he creates human beings with the unique capacity to look like God. And how do we look like God? Not by physical attribute, not by gender, not by anything external, but by certain qualities 
that are unique to God that he chooses for only human beings to share. Uh, Sandy mentioned patience earlier. Let's just do these one at a time for a second. Um, Is it possible for a dog to be patient? It's a trick question. The answer is no. Under no circumstances is a dog ever patient. You can train a dog to wait without barking, whimpering, and complaining. You can train that. Or you can fail to train it, and it will bark, whine, and, and complain. But the presence or the absence of the dog whining or barking has nothing to do with patience or the lack of patience. It just has to do with how much are you allowing it to act like dogs naturally act versus limiting the expression of its natural behavior for the sake of what's pleasant to you and your neighbors. That's the only difference. Dogs are incapable of patience. Only God and human beings are capable of patience. And of course, only human beings are capable of impatience, the violation of this attribute of God's image in man. So a wise and patient human being is portraying to the, to the world around them some, some large degree of likeness to God. Not perfect likeness, but to a large degree. When you see a truly wise and patient person, that, that, those qualities on, in, in uh, expression in that person remind you of, of God as they're meant to remind you of God. Right? Uh, what was the third one you meant? Holy. Okay, that's a perfect one. Holiness is in our Ephesians passage. Let me read it again. Ephesians 4. Uh, I think we were in verse 24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, uh, the reformers lean on this particular passage, Ephesians 4.24, and it's not bad that they do so. I just don't think we can limit it to these two named qualities. But they lean on this passage to identify by way of, well, what is the image of God in man? And they will say, holiness and righteousness and the ability, by the grace of God alone, it's not by our own efforts, our own you know, goodness that we do this, but by the grace of God, the ability to walk in righteousness and holiness are in large part what the image of God looks like when it's properly portrayed in man. So holiness. When you look at a cat, I don't care how good the cat is. I don't care. It could be the best cat in the world. You would never properly describe that cat's behavior as that is a particularly holy cat. <laughs> wow. That cat is walking with God. You just don't do that because they're in a different category. It's not an appropriate term to apply to a cat's behavior, even the best cat. Oh! Wait a second. I want to get this on sermon audio. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, but human beings are capable out of all of God's creation, and this is a wonderful, awesome privilege that God has given us. Every time we're faced, you know, because we face these choices every single day in our lives, we're walking along the pathway of our life, and we're, we're brought into circumstances that require a choice of us. And in that choice, we often are called to choose between a, a holy choice and a sinful choice. And each time we make the holy choice, what we're doing is we're by the grace of God, we're bearing more of his image in the world. Even if no one sees us, 
you know, the angelic hierarchies of, of created, you know, angelic beings. They, they see us. They observe us. And so we're portraying God's image when we make the holy choice. And every time, you know, and this is true for, you know, the cats is, and the dogs as well, they're not capable of unholy behavior, unholy actions. You know, we, you know only Hollywood would portray like a, a demon dog you know, like in a movie. What was that movie that was famous for Cujo? You know, the family dog goes bad, you know, and it's a demon dog and it eats everybody in the family. You know, uh, you know that's, I'm sorry, that's only in Hollywood. You know, you might have a particularly bad dog because you did not train it and you maybe abused it or, or mishandled it or whatever, uh, but that's not an unholy dog. It's just a poorly trained dog. That's why I, li- I love this uh, show. We don't watch it all the time, but sometimes, it's, have you ever seen this dog whisperer, uh, Caesar Milan? You know, what, his perspective, he's not a believer as far as I know. He might be, but he, he's not doing this from a spiritual perspective, but he believes there's no bad, no such thing as a bad dog. Just untrained, poorly trained. And I've seen him go. It's amazing. He, he'll go into, you know, a situation where this dog is just like, ravaging the family and the neighborhood and within you know a couple of weeks of of attention you know it's just this loving kind gentle you know obedient dog and it's not that he caused the dog to be born again (laughs) he just trained it you know but you and i before we were saved were incapable of truly holy behavior that's the old self, new self principle that we've studied in chapter 4. But now that we're born again, we have, for the first time, a unique and awesome capacity to actually walk in this central, most important of all of the attributes of God. Why do I call it the central, most important attribute? It's the one that the the living creatures around the throne are, are proclaiming day and night without ceasing as they behold the direct glory of God, you know, um, flying around his throne day and night throughout eternity. And, you know, as they behold him, they, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was, who is, who is to come. And, and you know, they're crying out for this attribute of God that they see displayed in, his, in the outshining of his glory. And that is a unique capacity that God has given to human beings. So to answer your question, Barry, the image of God in man is attributes, specific qualities that God intends only human beings, saved, covenant human beings, people that are born of the Spirit of God and are in right relationship with Him, He intends for them to display, to, to fulfill, not that we started the fulfillment of this, Christ Himself is the, the ultimate fulfillment, but because we're related to Him in the right way through covenant, we fulfill what God originally intended Adam and Eve to do, at the moment of their creation in the garden, but which sin intervened and twisted. So that, you know, what was originally created to be wise and patient and holy, we just listed three. We could list many other communicable attributes of God. So don't, if you're thinking in in terms of our list, don't limit to just these three. You know, you could take, for instance, Galatians 5, the famous list of the fruit of the Spirit. Every one of those things listed there is a communicable attribute of God. That's what the fruit of the Spirit actually is. And since we're in Ephesians 5, I'll, I'll, um, I'll emphasize tonight what I'll be teaching on then next Wednesday, or, yeah, Wednesday, not Friday, next Wednesday night, which is Ephesians 5, 
the passage I was going to be teaching tonight in verse 7 and 8 and 9. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. This is the passage we focused on last week. Walk as children of light. Remember, we saw that God is light. And if we're children of light, that means we, like father to children, we are capable of bearing his likeness. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So, you know, everything on our list of the communicable attributes would be things that are expressing the goodness, the righteousness, and the truth of God as he intended human beings to uh, display his likeness in the earth. Does that answer your question? Good. Okay, here's the deal is that, uh, let's talk about an unsaved man for a moment. Um, um, do unsaved people bear the likeness of God? The answer is yes and no. Yes, they do because they are human, not animals. I don't care. I mean, you know how it is. Some people can get really nasty and mean and degraded, you know, to such a deep, dark degree that it's almost like they're the worst of the animal kingdom, you know. And we refer to those kind of people as animals, but they're not even in their worst moments. I'm talking about your Adolf Hitler and your, you know, your Nero Caesar and, you know, you could just, you know, take the worst characters from human history and you ask the question, did Adolf Hitler, did did Caesar Nero bear the image of God? Not at all the way God intends human beings to in their best moment, in, in, in their best qualities. But, but they do bear the image of God in a way that animals are incapable of. But it's a fallen, twisted, perverted, ruined image. So that maybe the best way I could describe it is, uh, have you ever seen that famous statue, the Venus de Milo? Or like uh, Michelangelo's David. You know, these are famous statues you can find in, in some of the great museums of the world and whatnot. Um, those statues, if you look at them, they're, they're works of what are generally speaking considered to be incredible artwork. You know, masters made those statues. But what's wrong with the Venus de Milo other than the fact that she's half naked? She has no arms. Is that, is that statue displaying the beauty of the, the artist's capacity to create art in the way that the artist intended. In other words, did he make the statue without arms? Did he intend it to be without arms? No. Somewhere between the time of its creation and your viewing the statue, it was damaged. And does that mean it's not a beautiful statue? No. It's still considered to be a beautiful statue, but not nearly as beautiful as it could have been and actually was originally. And so it's kind of like that. The, the, the worst sinner, the worst sinner is a, is a ruined work of art is the way the Bible wants us to view that person. So much so that there's a passage in James and we can end with this one tonight. And Steve, I won't get to your question, but if we do another open study next month, you can help me to remember to tackle yours first, okay? Thanks. Um, James 
Where's the passage about the likeness of God? It's in chapter 3 on the, uh, the tongue, the warnings about the use of our tongue or the misuse of our tongue. Chapter 3, verse 9 of James says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The idea here is that, you know, when, when we're in our worst moments and we're cursing people, we're not limiting our curses just to other believers. This, is, this passage has always been interpreted by the Christian church as referring to all human beings when it refers to people being made in the likeness of God. So the, the, the idea is that the worst of sinners, even in his worst expression of sin, is still an image bearer of God, just a, a twisted or ruined or marred image bearer. And that what is required in order to restore the image to its original beauty and beyond is salvation, the new birth. Where Because the, and it's interesting, this kind of confirms our, our point of it not being a physical image that, is, that we're concerned with in, in bearing the image of God. When we're born again, it's not that God immediately gives us new bodies and starts from the outside and works his way in. He immediately gives us a new heart, a new spirit. And so it's that new heart that now is fully capable for the first time of bearing the actual likeness and image of God in the display of these communicable attributes that reflect God's likeness. All right? All right, God bless everyone, and Happy New Year!